Hello, my name is Lisa Ruth Rand. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, located in Philadelphia. Welcome to our podcast series. In this series, authors discuss their books with experts from a variety of professions and backgrounds. These discussions spotlight the relevance of historical scholarship to current issues in science, technology, and medicine. In this episode, we will discuss energy, environment, and the origins of the American fossil fuel paradigm with Christopher Jones. Christopher is Assistant Professor of History at Arizona State University and the author of Roots of Power, Energy and Modern America. Roots of Power traces the pathways by which the American energy industry grew into a vast network of canals, pipelines, and wires crisscrossing the nation. This network fuels an explosion of urban and industrial growth and accelerated the speed at which goods and power moved from sites of extraction and production to sites of consumption. While cities on the eastern seaboard benefited from cheap and abundant energy, rural regions of the Mid-Atlantic suffered from the environmental costs of creating and maintaining the power infrastructure. In this episode, several experts join Christopher to discuss his book, including Clayton Ruminski, technical services archivist at the Hagley Museum and Library, Bill Ward, retired physician and technology enthusiast, and Jim Weisberg, technology entrepreneur. Conaveri Bolton-Valentius, professor of history at Boston College, also joins us with questions posed by a group of Boston College students studying the past, present, and future of energy in the United States. We would first like to invite Christopher Jones to introduce his book. Hello, my name is Chris Jones, and I'm an associate professor of history at Arizona State University. I'm also the author of Roots of Power, Energy and Modern America, and I appreciate your interest in the topic and listening more. Now, for some of you who may not have read the book yet, or may be questioning whether to go out and get it, this is intended to give you a bit of an overview so the questions make sense. And again, I appreciate you taking the time to learn more about what I've worked on, and I hope it's of interest to you. So Roots of Power is a history of America's first fossil fuel energy transition. It studies the period from 1820 to 1930 and is based around three major case studies, the rising use of coal and its shipment by coal canals from 1820 to 1860, the rising use of oil from 1860 to 1900, and particularly the role of pipelines enabling that, and then the increasing use of electricity from 1900 to 1930, with a particular emphasis on transmission wires that could move it. Throughout the book, then, there's a focus really intensively on what causes energy transitions and what are their consequences. And for the causes, this is where my focus on the transport of energy really comes in. We've had a lot of histories that have looked at the pioneers of new energy sources, right? Think about Thomas Edison or John D. Rockefeller, the famous uh, magnets that you know from histories of these industries. And my emphasis has been to argue that, of course, their pioneering work mattered for this. But one of the central characteristics of energy has typically been, and particularly for fossil fuels, is that at one level, it's just very heavy, dense stuff. It needs to be moved long distances. And in almost all cases, 
where people have chosen to live has been physically distanced from where these energy sources have been produced. And this led me to pay particular attention to the role of infrastructure systems for moving energy. And in the book, I make an argument that these systems are really essential for explaining the timing, shape, and consequences of these energy transitions. It's not simply the case that they passively move energy from point A to point B, but that they reshape the world around that. And so that goes to very much to thinking about the consequences of energy transitions as well. And part of what I'm trying to do is really just get at how do people live work and play differently once they have access to abundant fossil fuel energy and who gets access to that and who doesn't. And so one of the clues very much to who gets access and who doesn't is to simply look at the infrastructure systems for delivering energy because they very clearly show us that it goes certain places and not others. So at one level, that's a kind of clear consequence for it. I'm also really interested throughout the book and what it means for people to live in a high energy society. And I trace the evolving ways over times that people start to undertake activities that they wouldn't normally, types of industrial work production, types of leisure activities like listening to railroads or driving in cars, and how these patterns emerged at what time they did and how fundamentally because of new changes that Americans made with their energy, they really began to forge a new country that looked very different from what had come before it. Our first question comes from Bill Ward, a retired physician and history of science and technology enthusiast, who grew up listening to lively debates about steam engine design while sitting around a pot-bellied coal stove in a machine shop with his foundryman father and his inventor friends. First, I'd like to say how much I liked your book. It was really a very uh, riveting read. It was, you know, well written, and it was it had a lot of interesting side stories, which is really what makes something readable. I think. Of course, whenever you like something, you always want more. Particularly, I would have liked to have seen you cover the history of the gas industry, and I think this would be a lead-in to pipelines because I think that the manufacture of steel piping really started with gas distribution systems, albeit only in cities. And also, um, there might have been a little bit of interesting steel piping from uh, builders of steam engines. I'm glad you brought up the subject of natural gas and their pipelines. When I was working on this project, I very much began with pipelines. Thinking about oil pipelines was my first entree into this project. And Part of what I discovered as I started researching was that oil mattered. It had very important consequences, but the more I studied what was important about oil, the more I realized that much of that actually began earlier with coal, and it drew me very much back in time to want to grapple deeply with the history of coal in a deeper way than I could have if I was just focusing on oil. And so pretty quickly in the project, I realized coal needed to be there. And if I had coal and if I had oil, then there is an unwritten historical law that you must have three case studies, and I had to find a third. And this gave me basically two major options as I could see it. One would have been to study natural gas, because it's the third type of fossil fuels and one that particularly in our own time has become very important. And in keeping with the emphasis on fossil fuels, that would have made a lot of sense. 
I chose not to study natural gas for two main reasons. One is that the transportation network for it is also pipelines, which I'd already looked at with oil. And yes, there are important changes, steel welding, other types of technology really matter for this. So there would be difference, but not as much as I really would have liked. And the second problem with it was that natural gas is less often consumed directly by consumers, but is more often used by industry. And the other alternative that I could embrace was electricity. And this didn't perfectly fit with coal and oil because both coal and oil are direct sources of energy that are converted into applications, whereas electricity is something that has been already generated by another form of energy, which could be coal, could be falling water, could be anything else. And so maybe that that at the surface doesn't seem like the most logical thing, but what held it together for me in the book and captures something I'm really trying to do throughout this book is that electricity mattered to individuals a lot more directly than natural gas did. When electricity arrives, people light their homes in new ways. They clean their houses in new ways. Domestic labor looks different. Leisure looks different as they get radios and later televisions and they get fans. And so if I was really thinking, as I wanted to in this book, about how energy transitions reshaped social life, there was just a lot more good juicy material in electricity that made me want to do that last study. So you're very right to note where is natural gas in it, because it's a curious omission. And it just became the case that because I wanted to focus as much as I could on the consumption and also have a different form of transport network to study, I favored electricity over natural gas. I also have a question about the comb that was discovered uh, behind the dam on the Susquehanna. And you said that this uh, anthracite dust was washed down from the North Susquehanna. And I wasn't clear if you meant that these banks of anthracite comb were natural, that is, they were a geological feature of that area. And if so, I wonder exactly where. I was wondering this because many years ago, I was on a puddle jumper plane in Alaska, and I found myself sitting next to the Alaska Fish and Game Commissioner. And he told me that he had previously been the Fish and Game Commissioner for Pennsylvania. And he told me that the Schuylkill became polluted and the, and the huge fish stocks disappeared when they started shipping coal down the Schuylkill? It's a good question about the anthracite coal dust that builds up behind the Holtwood Dam. So in the story, I described the building of the Holtwood Dam in 1910 along the Susquehanna River. And one of the things that's very interesting that happens is this is a source of hydroelectricity, but over the first 15 years of its operation, in the lake behind the dam, they start to discover huge quantities of anthracite coal dust, and they actually end up opening a coal-fired power plant right next to the dam to supplement its uh, electrical output and burn this coal dust that they've collected behind the dam. And so it's a story I really like in the book because it mixes a sort of renewable energy economy with a fossil fuel economy in quite interesting ways. And so... The question was specifically, was this just coming out of the boats? And the answer is no, it wasn't coming out through the bottoms of the boats. But what we have to realize 
is these boats on the canals carrying coal were carrying 90, 150 tons of coal, right? This is a lot of coal on every boat going many, many times. And what happens is you have wharves at the side of the river with just enormous piles of coal. And as that coal is dropped by gravity into the boats, huge clouds of uh, coal dust sort of puff up and go into the water and are swept down. In addition, those big piles of coal standing next to um, the river on the wharves, every time it rains, some of that rain washes the coal dust into the river, and that's where it ends up gathering. So it's a good question. It turns out not to be leaky boats, but just the process of gathering coal by the side of the river and getting it into the boats produces enough dust to produce very large quantities behind the dam. Next, we'll hear from Jim Weisberg, a technology entrepreneur whose interest in this subject grew out of an early childhood fascination with electricity and how things work. Thanks for taking my question. Um, in your book, you illustrate where republicanism, uh, not necessarily the Republican Party, uh, but the movement celebrated agriculture, decentralized power, uh, and local authority. Uh, this emphasized the private sector rather than government to solve or, in many cases, ignore uh, the externalities created in the extraction and transportation of fossil fuels. My question concerns how fracking has revitalized the oil and gas industry in Pennsylvania, and yet there is no extraction or severance tax. You wrote that 100 years ago, the actions of the Pennsylvania legislature favored entrenched interests. Has nothing changed for the better since that time? So there's a really great question here about whether democracies are particularly poorly suited to dealing with externalities. And here, the distinction I would make is that I don't think it's a question purely of democracy, because what we know is actually democracies take many different forms, and in particular, those forms have different types of relationships between business and government. And what I would observe in this particular situation in response to this question is that the acceptance of externalities, the lack of demand that corporations address them and do more to fix them, reflects not an inherent feature of democracy, but a particular form of democracy in America where there's been a tight connection between not just a, a system of capitalism that supports large corporations, but even a system of government in which those large corporations have had extra access to the political process through lobbying, through influencing politicians, and even more generally ideologically that I think many Americans have argued what's good for business is good for America, right? That's certainly not a universal uh, constant in American history, but it has been a powerful idea that has existed. And so I think American democracy during this period has taken particular forms, and it certainly is the case that at different times, corporate power has been stronger and less, less powerful at other times, more contested, more active citizenry at different periods of time. So I don't think there's a universal answer to this, but what I would say is I don't think it's a failing of democracy per se to not be able to address external externalities. 
I think it's more that in the American context, we've had a form of democracy and a form of capitalism that have given corporations a lot of power and a lot of leeway not to address these that has produced a lot of the uh, damages and environmental consequences that I described through the book. Our next questions come from Clayton Ruminski, Technical Services Archivist at the Hagley Museum and Library. Originally from Youngstown, Ohio, Clayton's subject specialty is the iron, steel, and coal industries during the 19th century, particularly in the Youngstown-Mahoning Valley area of Ohio, as well as eastern and central Pennsylvania. It has been four years since the release of your book, Roots of Power. Looking back, would you in any way reevaluate or rework the book's general scope or argument beyond that of the American Mid-Atlantic? And do you think a closer look at, for example, the growth of fuel and power networks in the Midwest would drastically alter your conclusions? I've gotten multiple questions about what I might rework if I were doing the book a few years later, if I were rewriting it now after its publication in 2014. And I think what I've seen in the energy world since the book was completed that's actually quite exciting is been a really strong and sustained dropping in the prices of renewable energy and solar in particular. I think that it was a trend that was starting to be seen as I was putting the touches on the book, but with history, there have been a lot of moments of optimism followed by a stagnation. And what we've seen is just continued gains that I think are really important, and I think underscore a point that I make in the book, but I might emphasize more, which is that energy transitions for a whole region or a whole nation do take a long time. The historian Václav Smil often talks about the decades-long process any of these take, and that's certainly true for these to really scale out. Yet, when we look at particular transitions at particular times and particular moments, they can go actually quite quickly. There was a pretty big and quick transition to many of the energy sources that I look at in this book, and I think that's happening with solar energy now, and I think I'd like to play up how much the past actually shows that we can move more quickly than sometimes we tell, us, tell ourselves that we do, and I think that message of optimism is really important for thinking about crafting a renewable energy in the future. How do you think your research might shape or influence future studies in the history of science and technology, and in particular those pertaining to energy systems? Authors are always flattered to even consider the idea that their work might be shaping and reshaping how future work in a field is done, so with some caution about saying I, I'm not sure how much effect this book has. I, I've been pleased with it, and I've been gratified that a number of my colleagues have found it useful. Let me say what I tried to do in the book that I hope others will continue to do, and in fact do even better than I have. One of those aspects is to focus very much on the use of energy and not just its production. I think that Within energy history more generally, there's been much more focus on who makes energy, the big companies behind it, and much less on what it means to people in their daily lives, how they use it, how their lives at very specific levels, how they work, how they live, how they play differently, that I think that that's really important to capture. And I made some attempts to do it in the book, and I hope that others pick up on that as well. 
I think another thing that I'm trying to do is have a work in the history of energy that is very much a history in connection to broader historical trends, that what I'm trying to do is track how, as the United States gained access to fossil fuel energy, it emerged into a different kind of nation, an industrial nation, one with larger corporations, one with different urban settings, different patterns of life, such that someone who may have no interest in energy history but cares about American history more generally, I hope it's the case that they would find a good deal of value in my book. And so that's something I was trying to do and is also another direction that I'd like to see the field take. Finally, we have questions from students at Boston College studying energy with Professor Conaveri Bolton Valentius. Hi, this is Conaveri Valentius. I'm a historian, and I'm one of the three instructors of a multidisciplinary course on U.S. energy that's part of the Boston College core curriculum for first-year students. There are 70 people in the class, and they were delighted to have the chance to ask you questions, Chris, since they've spent the first part of the semester reading your book. The students collectively decided which questions to prioritize, and then everyone who was interested in being on this podcast put their names into a hat. The first name we pulled out was Harry Potter, since our class clearly has read The Goblet of Fire. After that, we pulled the names of three non-fictional people who will ask you questions on behalf of our whole room. Hi, I'm Josh Gopeter from Boston College in the Powering America class. And my question is, in routes of power, you focus on the Northeast. Why not other parts of the country? What makes the Northeast particularly compelling or important? Thanks for your question, Joshua. You ask about why not study in other parts of the country, and what makes the Northeast particularly compelling. And I'll start with the second question. What makes it so compelling, this mid-Atlantic region, is it really is the first place that Americans begin to use fossil fuels intensively. And so if the question, and the question that the book asks, is how and where does this begin, and why, and what were its consequences, focusing on the mid-Atlantic region gives me the the region where it's best to look at that because it's where it happens first. Now, could one do a similar type of analysis of different regions in the country? Absolutely. And I think you'd find both some similarities, but both their own patterns. And so methodologically as a historian, one of the challenges is to find what is a unit of analysis that is big enough that you can tell an interesting story that will hopefully engage many, but not so big that you lose all local nuance and differences that are the types of kind of concrete specific details that historians prize and help us really understand the past in its complexity. And so for me, choosing the region was very much a methodological goal of trying to bite off the right size of the elephant, as it were, a size big enough that I could hopefully consume it fairly well Um, and responsibly, but not so big that I lost any details. So that's why I focused that particular way. Hello, my name is Johnny Liu. I'm also in the energy class in Boston College. And my question is, in your introduction, you stated that one of the main factors of energy transition is changing social mindsets. With this in mind, do you think it is possible to transition back to sustainable energy given our current social and political climate? Also, if we'd been more aware of the environmental impacts of fossil fuels sooner, what do you think U.S. energy would look like today? Good questions, Johnny. You know, I think 
One of the ways I think about this book, you ask about going back to a sustainable energy economy. And in the book, one of the things I talk about to kind of give a sense of what the renewable energy regime before fossil fuels look like is to call it the organic energy regime. And what's very clear to me is that we've gone from an organic energy regime based on food, on wind, on flowing water, to what I call a mineral energy regime, one based on fossil fuels. At one level, a sustainable energy world might look like a return to the organic energy regime. In a sense, it will be back to being based on uh, sunlight once again. But the major distinction is that we now have very different converters for that energy. So instead of using the sun simply to grow plants that we either burn or feed to ourselves or animals to gain energy, we convert it through things like solar panels and through electricity. So the future is going to be very much a hybrid between the organic and the mineral energy regimes. That's part of why studying hydroelectric dams was interesting to me as my final case study. So it's going to be this kind of in-between thing, which I think it's important for us to be aware of the characteristics of each to try and make sense of that. Now, you also want to know if we've been aware of the environmental impacts of fossil fuels sooner, would U.S. energy look different today? And I guess I'd like to say optimistically that I hoped we'd be further along the renewable energy transition if we were. Um, now, I also think many of the problems of fossil fuels have not been hidden for many for a long time. I do think it's an important aspect of the historical record to make it clear that people have known about a lot of the damages for a very long time, and the issue has not been knowledge that those are bad. It's been the fact that these harms have been disproportionately shared by, not shared, but have been disproportionately experienced by certain people, often lower income communities, often those not with a huge amount of political power, while the benefits have been reaped by other groups. And so it's not just knowledge of the problems we need, but sort of social and political will to create a more equitable energy system. And that, I think, might go longer towards achieving our goals. Hi, my name is Will Foreman, and I'm also from the Boston College Powering America class on American Energy. We were wondering what sparked your interest specifically in the interconnectedness of organic and mineral energy regimes. Thanks, William, for asking about organic and mineral energy regimes specifically, because it's actually the foundations of where I really began this project. And um, my interest in it came from reading E.A. Wrigley's Continuity, Chance, and Change, a 1988 book that first introduced the concepts of organic and mineral. And he really did an amazing job of laying out the differences of a world, an organic world that depends on sunlight versus a mineral world that depends on fossil fuels. And he just showed how the potential for economic growth, the potential for large urban cities, the potential for all kinds of different ways of life just simply do not exist the same way in a world without fossil fuels. That fossil fuels may not be a sufficient cause for modern economic industrial growth, which has arguably been the most important development of the last 200 years. They may not have been sufficient for that, but he makes the argument, and I, I believe it, that they were necessary. And 
So this big argument really appealed to me, and I wanted to take this to the American case. There have been a few other people who'd looked at and invoked this concept, Thomas Andrews and Killing for Coal, which is a wonderful book, brings it up a bit. Uh, but no one else that I had detected had done a careful systematic analysis of what this transition from the organic to the mineral looked like. Who were the main actors? Where? When did it happen? What was the sort of messiness of it? We have this ideal type of organic and mineral, but what happens when they're mixed together like you have on a hydroelectric dam? And so for me, getting at these questions seemed really important because they get at why fossil fuels remain such a challenging topic, right? They are so important to the economies we've set up. They're so important to many of the quality of life issues that many of us want to have, the ability to travel, to live in comfortable homes. And yet they are also associated with such significant environmental impacts that we need to grapple with the way society and fossil fuels are intertwined. And for me, this framework did more than anything else to help me explain it. And so it's why I made it a central focus of the book and find it really intellectually valuable. This has been a production of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. If you enjoyed this discussion of Roots of Power and would like to hear future episodes, please subscribe to the series using your preferred podcast platform. For more information on the Consortium, please follow us on Facebook, on Twitter at chstmorg, or visit chstm.org. Thank you for listening.